people have other things. Hey, Adam. Hello, So, Ray. hey, so first of all, thank you so much for joining me on the Founders Predicament podcast. Um, My pleasure. I really appreciate your time. And uh, so for want of uh, just for full disclosure here, Adam and I have known one another for about five years. Is that right? Five years? I think so. Yeah. We started off uh, in the same co-working space in Civic Hall pre-pandemic in New York City on 22nd Street and 6th Avenue. And now we're co-working in the same place on 37th Street and 5th Avenue um, in the same, yeah, in the same space again, which is nice. Uh, and briefly, we shared a, a, a little time during the pandemic civic hall kind of reopened for us and then it shut down again very suddenly <laughs> you remember right. that i do remember that yeah. yes and i think we've tried to both be helpful to each other as we go along this entrepreneurial journey that we're both on right uh, every opportunity to help me you help me and every opportunity to help I, you i help you yeah absolutely it's been great yeah so anyway thank you again for joining me um great tell me Tell me a bit about who you are, where you're from, how you got here. And um, you you have this startup called Clutch, K-L-A-A-T-C-H, Clutch. Before you tell me about Clutch, tell me what you did before you started Clutch. So uh, before I started Clutch, I spent a pretty long uh, career. Well, I should say I started off as going to graduate school and studying uh, urban planning and working in the South Bronx, uh, eventually in doing economic development. But eventually I, uh, funny enough, migrated to um, investment banking. And I spent um, 20 plus years as an investment banker, uh, started a couple of different investment banks. One today is the largest investment bank in the renewable energy space that I started with friends in 1998. And so most of my time was in the energy sector, and a lot of that time was in the renewable energy sector, um, both on the private side as well as on the public side. So I, I was the executive vice president and chief restructuring officer of a public company um, and did that kind of financial uh, work. And I considered myself uh, part of the finance and investment banking uh, world for a long time, both domestically and internationally. Cool. I remember you telling me about being in Scotland and negotiating with Scottish people is notoriously difficult. Um, yes, it not is. To, not to denigrate <laughs> Scots in any way, but I'm assuming that no. was um, I'm assuming that was to do with oil and gas at that time, not wind. That was uh, it was it was an oil and gas uh, it was a gas transaction actually, uh, a small power plant and a series of gas fields that were in North Yorkshire and that we were selling to Scottish Power. Uh, and that was a workout. That was my sort of expertise is coming into problematic situations and figuring out how to sort of turn lemon into lemonade. Um, mm. But mostly in the in the energy and, as I said, a lot of it in the renewable energy space. So when did you leave the energy sector and why? So... Um, after the financial crash in 2008, um, my business partners at the time uh, had had success in the uh, 
early 1990s financial crisis in buying uh, distressed assets. And while we had spent most of our time uh, dealing with things of building renewable energy and, and fossil fuel energy projects, um, we decided that this was an opportunity and we would enter into it. And we landed up teaming up with a group of people to build a uh, residential non-performing uh, distressed trading desk. Uh, I was not usually thrilled by this, but sometimes when you're in a partnership, you do those things that your partners feel strongly about and you have less strong feelings. Um, and so we I'll, landed I'll, up by yeah. Those are the, um, what was the word for those? There was a word for those assets. They were um, the distressed real estate assets. They were called something. What was the what was the common term for that? Sure, I'm not sure. I mean, they they were all just for us. They were all we we also bought landed up buying some commercial assets. Hmm. Um, but in any event, that that wasn't very satisfying work for me. Um, but. It was fine. It wasn't hugely successful financially either. Uh, cost us a lot of money to build everything, and and it was a very challenging marketplace. And uh, around that time, or through that time, um, my we we realized that my my dad was really having troubles connecting. My mother passed away in two thousand ten, sort of right as this this uh, the crisis was sort of. I guess not at its height, but at from a from a business perspective was most challenging time. And we knew that we needed to keep my dad connected. We we loved him, my kids loved him, we would see him, my sister and her kids lived not so far away. And we were trying to stay uh in connection with him, but we also expected after my mother passed away that Eventually, he would sort of develop his own group of friends. He was a very social guy. My um, The financial crisis had caused him to have to retire at 75. I don't think he really wanted to, but um, just the business environment forced him to. And so a lot of his friends were at work, and now he wasn't connected to them anymore. And the more we tried to help, uh, other than going to see him ourselves, which we would see him once or twice a week, he really resisted uh, doing anything. And the more time went on, we noticed a bunch of sort of behavioral changes that were really unlike my dad. And uh, around 2014 or 15, I landed up reading this book um, by this author named John Cacioppo, who's uh, was this amazing researcher and professor at University of Chicago. It was called Loneliness, Human Nature, and the Need for Social Connection. And what I found out was almost everything I thought about loneliness was wrong, except for the fact that it was having a profound impact on my dad. And I used to tell people, my dad was like a veritable roadmap of what happens to somebody when they become socially disconnected. And eventually that set me on a course of reading more and more about initially loneliness, and then subjects like group dynamics and social network theory, happiness, wisdom. And uh, I eventually went to my partners in 2016 and said to them, I love you guys, you guys are great, but I am coming to work and I am working on uh, 
thinking about this issue of loneliness and how we solve this problem and not about what we're doing. So I'm going to leave and just see if I can figure this out. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I feel like I have to try and figure this out. It's a big problem. Uh, my dad had come to live with us in 2016 and after he had some health issues and he had some uh, cognitive decline. And I just decided that was the right time to do that. So luckily I had made some money in my life and we were in a position to be able to do that. And so I just decided I'd start reading and thinking about how I could figure this out. No business in mind, no for profit, not for profit, didn't know what was the solution, didn't have some very strong ideas, had some thoughts. And I started to write them and read and write and share my ideas with people and started to talk to people. And that was the starting of, it wasn't called Clotch, our original name of the business, the still legal name is Seniors Together Inc., um, which I don't really like, but that was where we started out uh, going. And until I met my initial co-founder um, who had an expertise in education and we applied to an accelerator and were forced to basically set up a company because she needed to get paid, um, that's how the business got started uh, as Seniors Together Inc. That's how we, we got it going. Um, but it was at the beginning, we didn't even know, like, I didn't even know before that, was it going to be for-profit or not-for-profit, Ray? It was, became a for-profit business because she needed to get paid and I could put some money in. And one of my buddies said to me, I'll put in, I'll write a check for 12 grand. And, um, he said, get started. And I said, I don't have a bank account. And he said, I don't care. I'm sending you the money right now. This is a good thing. You need to go do this. Go figure it out. I'm I'm behind you. I'll back you. And he's true to that till this day. So that was the beginning of the business. So just, I know you explained it a little bit, but um, in the context of your dad, but in a larger context, could you summarize what problem you're solving at Clutch? What do, what do you think? What do you, what, what, what's wrong? What's broken and how are you fixing it? So the problem that we're trying to solve is how do we build a new infrastructure of community that enables older adults, who, some of whom will become lonely, to stay socially connected and to maintain community so they can live better, happier lives? Um, and, and that's really, that's the, that was the mission uh, to begin with, to overcome the staggering burden of loneliness on older adults and the healthcare and social systems that serve them. Uh, that's what we're in business to do. Um, initially, we thought, I, I look back on this with a smile on my face, that we could come up with a solution to this. And now I, I have a different thought about it. I think we can be part of an ecosystem that builds a new infrastructure of community that leverages technology and human connection to build a better connected world um, where people feel seen and heard. And we're not gonna be the solution, we're gonna be part of that ecosystem. And that's sort of where we have evolved over the last couple of years. So initially you were trying to solve the, solve the problem somehow. And was we, it we originally came up with a program. It eventually turned into a 12 week 
peer-to-peer coach-led program Mm -hmm. where every, it was a a structured conversation where every week you'd meet with a group of people. It was not therapy and it was not current events. It was a social group where we explored ideas that were related to the behaviors that are driven by loneliness because loneliness causes very specific behaviors. We call them at clocks the habits of loneliness, but these are generally referred to as self-protected, self-protective, self-centered, non-empathetic behaviors like hunger. When you become hangry, it's a behaviors that change your personality to get you to do something. In the case of hunger, of course, they're trying to get you to eat and, and those behaviors drive people to say, hey, what's wrong with you? You need to eat something. In the case of loneliness, theoretically, it's trying to get you to reconnect and to overcome that sort of physical discomfort that the body is telling us we need to do because we're social beings. And just like we need food, we need social connection to live and prosper as species on this planet. Okay. So I know I know quite a bit about your solution because we work in the same office and we talk more or less every day. But um, so you're solving. So that was the initial thing. That was the initial thing. Where where are you now? And I know you've come a long way. I mean, I understand there's two things you you, you just said, like you're just solving a much narrower problem or you're 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 not trying to take on the whole thing. You want to become part of the ecosystem. But could you describe what you're doing? And how technology plays a role in it? Because I think that's that part is fascinating to me. So um, as we started out, because I had come from this sort of analytic background, as we created this program, I wanted to find some metric of success to know that we were actually reducing loneliness as opposed to, you know, just providing a nice program and maybe people liked it and didn't, but didn't make them less lonely. And the existing uh, self-reported tools that had been validated out there, when we used them, we, we just didn't find that the qualitative and the quantitative had anything to do with each other. So we'd administer a survey pre and post that was a validated three-question loneliness survey. We used a couple of different kinds um, that are out there that had been validated. And, and they just didn't match generally up to anything that was happening qualitatively in the groups that we were running. And we looked in the research and it turned out this was a common problem. And after finally reading a paper where it was an intervention pretty similar to ours, where they were in a country with an integrated health system and they found that the program was amazingly effective. It reduced healthcare costs among participants by like 1500 euros a year. It uh, showed in every measure, uh, number of contacts people were happening, their outlook, all this stuff. And yet the loneliness measures showed no change. And the conclusion of this study of this great program was we need better measures. And I stopped us what we were doing. And I said, we're going to figure out a better measure. And I happened to be um, in conversation with another person at Civic Hall named Alana Duffy. And she um, was working on measuring resilience among veterans and how they liked the programs they were taking using this technology called natural language processing, where you could look at somebody's personality using what's called a five-factor model, which is the oldest, most 
established personality model in the field of psychology. This is not Myers-Briggs, as I like to tell people, which is generally I refer to as the uh, astrology of the psychology business. This is real science. And it turned out that loneliness and a five-factor personality model had a strongly statistically significant correlation, both at the overall level of the model, as well as individual traits. So if those who don't know it, a five-factor model is often referred to as ocean or canoe, which stands for conscientiousness, agreeableness, neuroticism, openness, and extroversion. You shouldn't think of those as colloquial terms, but scientific terms in the view of the model. And we, uh, together using that and an, a validated loneliness measure and a measure of engagement, we set about building a uh, model. Then the question was how to create or generate the language. Because you, what you're doing with natural language processing is you're analyzing common speech and and making insights, including measuring personality from that. And we were already using friendly phone calls at the beginning and end of the program to talk to people and collect the data. And so. We built that model with the idea that we would measure our program. And that was the sort of, we stopped in 2019 and at the beginning of 2020, after testing it on a number of uh, places, we felt we were ready to start to implement the program, this, this metric. And we uh, got hired by a community up in New Haven, Connecticut called The Towers to go out and uh, try and implement this at the community level and see if we could measure people, not just in programs, but in general. And that's what we did. So, so um, how, still how, with the thing. Yeah, go ahead. How is the, um, I think the towers, if I remember correctly, still, still a client of yours. They still a client with us. They love so, our work. So what, what impact have you had on their operations? So um, just one little thing to tell you about them. So they thought they were really, uh, sort of progressive, active in terms of what the staff was doing with community, but they landed up doing a survey of their community and were shocked to find that 38% of the residents were lonely. And we happened to meet them at that time. And that's why they were interested in working with us. And so we've done a number of things to help them. First of all, we built this model where we're not just looking at programs and evaluating programs, although we do that for them as well. But we could look over time and measure individuals and see their change in loneliness over time. And what we saw when we were testing our new model of measurement is the quantitative always match the qualitative, not just in um, direction, but in degree. So if a group became very well connected over a 12-week period, we showed a huge increase in, in, and the qualitative data and the quantitative data matched up nearly like identically. And if we had groups where there wasn't very much cohesion, those groups, the scores didn't move very much. But we were interested in whether we could do this for people in general and whether we could identify not only which programs what are effective, but which individuals might need additional attention who were lonely. And once they were, we identified them, were there programs out there that could assist those people? And did they have gaps in their programming? And we've done all of that for them. So, so now so they're able to track that. How much have you moved the needle from the 38%? Have they, have they done another overall survey to see 
So they haven't used that survey to, to do that. But what we've uh, been able to do is, and they still have a long way to go, I would say, is solutions are hard. But now what they're able to do is focus on those smaller group of individuals. So this is a community of 325 people. About 100 people have basically a significant cognitive impairment that can't participate in the program. So we're usually looking at around 200 and 210 people. Every, first of all, they weren't speaking to a lot of their residents. They were only speaking to the residents who would come forward and speak to them. So now they speak to nearly every resident three times a year, and they have these sort of friendly phone calls that we train them to have. So they're in more connection with them. And what that's done is it's driven new kinds of programming, it's drawn new kinds of initiatives, and it's changed the way that they operate in terms of their connectivity with the residents. And so we've seen that there's fairly stability in any one moment of people who are lonely at any one time, because it's normal to become lonely and then reconnect. That's natural and normal. Um, and they, after an initial period where it improved, I would say, you know, 12, 15%. But the number of people who are um, uh, high, at high risk for loneliness has, has declined. And that's been definitely a big improvement. And the overall quality of programming has improved substantially. So resident satisfaction is higher and that they have uh, tracked. And then they've also been able to do other things like connect up falls with loneliness and start to now address the fall risk, which reduces the amount of loneliness people have because if people are worried about falling down, they don't leave their apartment. And so we've been able to provide them some integration with other programming where they measure the fall risk and then we can see what happens with those people in terms of loneliness over time. So I think that they've been super happy. The other piece we've done is because we're providing them quantitative results on their programming, they're able, they've been able to dramatically increase the amount of funding. Like they probably have 30 to 40% more foundation support than they did when we started in 2020. And I think they would tell you, we provide them with, um, visual representations and data that shows the effectiveness of their what they're doing. And today, foundations and, and donors, they want that verification that their money is actually going to things that actually work. Excellent. So um, a couple of things. I think you've told um, us a little bit about what you've learned through the successes and, and, and what you do differently. So if you could start Clatch again, what would you do differently knowing what you do now? Um, God, so many, so many mistakes um, or wrong paths. Um, my original co-founder was the wrong person uh, for what we needed. And, and that was, that, that took a long time to sort through and get to the right place. So I would say who you partner with really matters. Um, and I think if it was up to me, I would have done some things differently in terms of financially and uh, um, equity wise that I should have really done uh, up front and didn't. So that's one big lesson. Uh, another lesson is to have a little bit less hubris and more humbleness in your ability to solve problems. Not less confidence, but less 
surety of that you're right um, or that you're going down a road that's that's going to be in the right place. I think if you're more willing to listen to the market and listen to the people around you, you have a better chance of getting to the right solution faster um, and staying at the table longer, which is the third thing is this I always knew, but I've really like it's solidified in my brain so hard that your ability to solve complicated problems that are important, at least important to you, are directly tied to your ability to stay at the table. If you cannot stay at the table, you cannot solve the problem. And so what we've been able to do is it took us a long time to get to where we are now, where I feel like we're on a good path. Um, but that's only because we were able to stay at the table for six years. Um and be able to keep the business going and bring in enough revenue and raise enough money to be able to, to, to do that. And sticking at the table is really key. I've learned more every year than I learned in all the years combined. So in year one, I learned so much more than I learned in um, like year three, I learned as much as year three as I did in year one and two combined. In year four, I learned as much as I learned in years one, two, and three as I learned there. So keeping at the table allowed me to get so much smarter about it and be much more willing to explore things that I didn't think were, were viable and now thought, oh, it's because I was thinking too narrowly. I was not thinking broadly enough. I wasn't listening enough to other people about what was possible and was going down alleys that people maybe said I shouldn't go down, but I didn't listen to them. Now I'm much more likely to listen. So you mentioned the initial 12 grand investment. My guess is that you've had a lot more than that. And I know for a fact that you're applying to the government for some research money. <clears throat> so two part question. How else did you raise money apart from this initial very enthusiastic investor? And then secondly, what led you down this path to um, the, if you will, free government money? And how's that working out? Um, well, I will just say that on the government side, I think I think it will work out eventually, but we're in the wait and see uh, time period. So um, when I started out, I realized I was going to need to go to uh, a few friends uh, who might be willing to support me through this. And I had had a couple of conversations uh, prior to my friend Mark writing this initial check to my personal bank account um, and uh, uh, just telling me, what are you waiting around for? Just go. Come on. Here. Here's the money. Go. And so we've we haven't raised a huge amount of money, but we've raised about six hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars over the years um, to get here. We've generated a certain amount of revenue during that time, and between those two things, we've been able to keep the the band together, as they say. Um, we made a pretty significant change when we changed co-founders, and my current co-founder, who is a computer scientist and uh, financial uh, quantitative expert uh, and data scientist um, was an important addition to the team that that came on uh, about, oh, I would say it's two and a half, three years ago now. Um, and that was important. 
Um, so we started to talk to, I tried to talk to my friends and, and ask them if they would invest and uh, pushing them to say, this was important. Uh, they knew I didn't have a solution. They knew I didn't have a product, but they believed in, in me and my ability to solve problems. I'd been a really good problem solver. And so um, that's how we got started doing this. Um, we got lucky. We were an ARP startup in residence when we were still offering our program. And that gave us some money. Um, and then finally, we got our first institutional investor last year. And that was uh, the biggest single investor we got in one go, $150,000. And that was uh, very helpful. The government money was a big lift. Uh, I will just say, because we decided to go for the gold ring instead of the brass ring. Um, so we applied for over two and a half million dollars in funding. And uh, we teamed up with the University of Pennsylvania with a very experienced researcher who's interested in the work that we were doing and had the right expertise. And I'm optimistic that we'll either get positive news uh, next month or we'll reapply and we'll event we'll get funding, you know, later in 2024. So which um, which program is yeah. this, Adam? So we applied for what's called a small business innovation research grant. These are grants that are often offered by every part of the federal government through agencies with budgets larger than $100 million. They all set aside a certain amount of money to help spur innovation in their field. In our case, we applied to a uh, institute within the National Institutes of Health, the NASH, in our case, the National Institute on Aging, uh, that was interested in the kind of technology that we were developing. And um, together with the University of Pennsylvania, we put together that application along with some assistance from a couple of different consultants that we used to get to the finish line on that. and. And, and we were able to complete that, as I said, in uh, uh, over the summer. Uh, we're planning on applying for additional grants right now, and we're actually in conversation with other universities uh, for the NIH, as well as for other institutions within the government, including the National Science Foundation. So uh, how will the money be split between you and the university? So in our case, the university will get uh, about 800000 just under $800,000 over a 30-month period. Mm. Um, and so we'll have the rest of the money to run the business. Of course, we have to allocate, you know, based on what we're doing, but that's what we're, that's our, our application. Um, it will enable us to bring on new resources uh, that we've, uh, we've identified, including personnel and to uh, expand our uh, collaboration with our um, our development partner in Poland who, who is now doing uh, some of the coding and, and development work that needs to be done and system design work that we're doing. So that they'll pay for, for that work. And I think our strategy going forward is over the next couple of years to apply for a number of these grants with the hope that we'll will meet them. It's called a fast track, what we did, which combines both a phase one, which is sort of an exploratory grant, and a phase two, which is uh, developing a commercialization model uh, 
piece of this. And so we're doing one in one combined grant. So that was sort of like the triple Lindy um, to, to, to be able to do. To qualify for this kind of money, does what you're doing have to be of benefit to the public or doesn't it matter what you're doing? It has to be. So there's a number of different criteria here. So one, the uh, particular organization will tell you what their priorities are and they'll list them out. And so it's better to be applying for something under which they already have uh, an existing uh, identification of a need that they've published and put out there. And there's a literally a manual of those for all the different agencies that, at least within the NIH, which is vast, all the different ones that are out there. And in our case, they were looking for diagnostics like an analytics around the kinds of applications that we were developing. So that made it a little bit easier. But in general, they're looking for things that will advance the technology of companies within the United States. That's what they're trying to do. So okay, it's got, pretty broad and pretty open. I've got one more question regarding investors. You mentioned you had um, $150,000 from a, um, from a uh, institutional, investor. institutional investor. Now mm -hmm. you've got government money. How's that changing the operations of your company? Are you gonna have to hire somebody else to do the books and stuff just to make sure it's absolutely transparent? So they ha we haven't yet gotten to the point where we have an audit requirement. Um, we already have an outside bookkeeper uh, an accountant who prepares the, the tax returns and and um, uh, we use QuickBooks and I have some expertise so I'm able to monitor that. But yes, when we go to the government contracting work, it's not a requirement for per se for the government, but we want to have good policies and procedures in place given the amount of money that we're getting. So in the event anybody ever looks, we, we're... We're in good standing there. We have enough resources to do that. And we've yeah. set aside resources to to do that. In terms of our investor, I actually have this due tomorrow. We have minimal but regular reporting that we have to do, but it's basically all on, there's nobody looking over our shoulder on that reporting. Uh, they're just uh, putting that money in. I should also say that the investor was an accelerator. So they also provided programming and support to us um, but our requirement is we have to sort of file these quarterly reports. Originally, they were twice annually, and they've now increased it to quarterly. I'm a little bit annoyed about it. Hmm. So, and do you have an exit strategy? And if so, would you mm -hmm. like to talk about that? I can talk about it for a second. So I think this is a place where my experience is both as an investment banker as being on the investor side, as well as the uh, going out and soliciting investment really helps. So I would say that you always need from day one an exit strategy. You have to have an idea about how you want to exit. That can change over time, um, but you always want to have that. Right now, I'm very vocal about the fact that I am trying to get to an exit in the next three to four years. And so I'm changing some of the ways that we're doing things. We're no longer exploring as much. And now we're trying to develop the technology and the market so that we can show traction sufficient for an investor to want to uh, acquire us. There's usually only two exit strategies in a business like ours. 
um, an IPO or a strategic sale. Uh, it could also be an asset sale. Um, I am very suspect of our ability and does need to ever get to an IPO. So we're looking and trying to identify what markets are going to be the best places for us and what players might be targets for us for exit even now. Um, and I'm in that process of doing that today in a way that makes it more real. Like if I want to sell to this kind of organization, what am I going to need to do? What information am I going to need to have? What level am I going to need to have gotten to? And working backwards from there to try and get to a sale. So I think in, in the healthcare and the digital health space, uh, we're going to be an attractive company because we map the topography of, of loneliness, but we could map other things like depression, anxiety, resilience, et cetera. And then we map that and match it to programs that are specifically tailored to an individual. I think that technology is going to be valuable and we're trying to identify what the players are that might want to acquire that that technology and, and expertise. Okay. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Because you've answered all of my questions. No, I, uh, I've, it's been fun. It's always fun to talk about sort of living in the entrepreneurial space. I'd say the one thing for other entrepreneurs um, to just be aware of is there's a lot of responsibility with coming when people start to work for you and you have to pay their salaries and you you want to deliver for them. And, you, you know, my I have two pieces of advice on that. Listen to those people. You hired them. They probably have something good to say. And if you don't think they do, then you should hire someone else. And two, make sure you take care of yourself because it's stressful to be an, an entrepreneur and to have all that weight on your shoulders. And if you don't take care of yourself, then you're not going to be as effective and get to the solutions of the important problems you're trying to solve. Okay, Adam. Adam Green from Clutch. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, on Ray. Founders Predicament. And yeah, I'll see you. I'll see you in a few I'll minutes. see you around. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye.